Welcome to episode 190 of the Win 6 podcast. I'm your host, Adam McGee, and joining me as usual is my good friend, Jordan Tresky. Hello there, Jordan. Hello. I'm sorry I interrupted your your sip of coffee there, Jordan. This is important. I feel like we should let people in on this because it's important. Something to say to that now? No, I see <laughs> This is pointing out why we need to point this out. <laughs> See, we we normally record at night, but the Sixers game coming when it did, it just a variety of factors meant we're recording early on Monday. And Jordan's normally, you know, opposed to this idea because it can't be so early that he hasn't had his coffee. So Jordan is having his coffee while we record. Listen closely. Maybe you'll observe whether, you know, He's better towards the latter half of the podcast. Maybe much like the books were on Sunday night against the 76ers. Jordan just might come on strong late to close this out well. But yeah, early on. I just... undercut as I'm going up for a breakaway dunk by a large man. <laughs> I can't live without my coffee, Adam. I need my well, cup of joe. You don't have to because as you're proving, nothing gets in the way of it. You're just, you're going to do it. If there's any prolonged pauses from Jordan, I mean, more prolonged than usual, not prolonged with the kind of noises Jordan normally makes, you know it's a coffee break. Yeah, coffee break. All right, Jordan. Moving on from your coffee, although we'll see how that impacts what we talk about here on in. Let's move on to the books. Let's move on specifically to Sunday's game against the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, on our last episode of the podcast on Friday, we kind of talked about, okay, the books are in the middle of a losing streak. Our hope was that there would be, well, our hope was that there'd be two wins to talk about, but that there would be at least one by the time we came around to here and we were on this particular recording. The books delivered us one and they put together that win in maybe the most exciting and satisfying way possible, even though I guess there was plenty there early on that would have been equally concerning. After going down in a big hole twice in this game, the Bucks rolled off a 21-0 run to finish the third quarter and go into the fourth quarter. That turned the game on its head and allowed them to get the better of a really, really good 76ers team, a team who had won eight of their previous 10, and a team who were, I mean, they looked unstoppable in the early stages of the game. It was some books, some poor books play, but uh, I think maybe it was undersold a little bit by some people at that time. 
unsurprisingly, considering the sentiments of you know where the books were at, considering they'd lost four straight, but it wasn't just awful books play early on. There was some really great offense and some really great defense from the Sixers to open up that lead. Most importantly for us, though, the books found a way to come back and win. Just how impressed were you by the way they managed to turn that game around? How impressed were you overall by how the books played on Sunday? It was a strange game for a variety of reasons. I was tweeting, and I had to do the takeaways afterwards, so I don't think I have really registered in my mind how kind of important <laughs> that win is, even though I know on the surface, but it has, I don't know, it's just kind of a weird feeling. Especially, you're down, I mean, that, that first quarter was uh, like a carbon copy of, like, that Wizards first quarter, or... Uh, I mean, any bad quarter that they've had basically since the All-Star has picked back up or since the All-Star break. So you're, you know, obviously at the lowest of low, and then you see them come back in the, at the, in the second quarter and then kind of gets away from them at the end of that half. And then the third quarter happens and they're just following. Like they had four fouls in a matter of 54 seconds, which is just, it has to be some sort of record. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a weird kind of, it was just like this, the cliche of it's a game of runs. That was like it in like the highest degree yesterday for both teams. Cause it was just weird how it would just like shut off and then the other team would just, you know, race ahead and then grab a hold of the lead or build their lead up or whatever. And then just kind of trade back and forth and back and forth. Um, but on it, it was definitely a big win considering the Sixers have, like you said, they won the last, uh, their last eight out of 10. They've been surging. Um, they're obviously ahead of the Bucks by half a game now with this win. Um, so that's equally important because Bucks obviously have a chance at the tiebreaker now as well. I mean, they're up to one with a game to play. So, and they're, yeah, don't they play the last game of the season? So that's, I think that's right. It. Yeah. And who knows? remember, it could be a four or five decider for who gets home court, or it could be deciding that like that game could have permutations for almost every matchup in the Eastern Conference, depending on where those teams are positioned going into that game. Yeah, we're, I, I feel like we are heading, there's a lot of implications no matter what it is, because obviously the Bucks could lose their pick if they are the seventh or eighth seed. Mm-hmm. But I feel like we're heading towards uh, two years ago when. The East, like th- I think it was seeds through three through six, like the Hornets, <laughs> yeah, Hornets, Hawks, Heat, and Celtics were all tied, and they had a they all played. Uh, obviously, on the last night to figure it out, and I, I can't remember how it ended up being arranged, but I feel like we are heading towards that way with in that kind of same order with like between like Bucks, Wizards, Sixers, and even Cavaliers, considering that you know they've kind of mm-hmm. tumbled back down a little bit. So yeah, we are. I mean, yeah, it's just it's very crazy. <laughs> I, I think the interesting thing you're right in describing this as the ultimate game of runs, but often games like that, those runs are more dictated by the bad play of one team than the good play of the other. And don't get me wrong, there was bad from both the books and the Seventy Sixers in their respective downturns in this game, but. I mean, where, where the Sixers were brilliant on both ends early on, when the Bucks turned the game around, it was the same thing. It was true, they're playing both ends of the floor. It wasn't just the Sixers stopped making shots. It was that the Bucks yeah. stopped allowing the Sixers to make shots, and vice versa in the early running. And 
that was interesting and it made it a really good game rather than just you know games like this can be exciting because you're having the back and forth in spite of it was never all that close in a meaningful way you know there it was close in say for a spell in the second the spell in the third quarter and even beyond that i mean the books then went on and opened up a pretty significant run that it was never all that close for most of the fourth but there was still something to it because both teams were shown the ability that okay we can lock in on both ends and that's how we can build a run and it's not just going to be an 80 run we can really build a significant run because of that it's not just offense it's defense as well for me that was encouraging for the books for obvious reasons i mean we talk a lot about the defense being stagnant or the offense being stagnant and Yanis has a Yanis has struggled quite a lot recently. He obviously broke out of that slump to some extent in that game. We also talked with the defense and have for a long time about the book's defensive weaknesses. And I think one of the things we've seen in spells under Joe Prunty, maybe maybe you could say in spells this season overall, but more so under Prunty, is you know the defense, it can work. It's just the problem is it's so inconsistent. But it's whether at this point we can look at it and say, okay, it can work when they play the Raptors or it can work in this scenario against the 76ers. The question we're going to have going to the playoffs is, is it closer to a switch that the books can just turn on when the stakes are really high and they're ultra-focused? Or is it just coincidence that against good teams and in some big games they've been able to do it? I think that's that's an interesting wrinkle to all of this. But while we talk about the problems the books' defense have, I, I don't think it should be overlooked that you know when the books turn turn the defense up and it's actually working it's a force unlike many other defenses in the nba like that that third quarter stretch just on both ends it was some of the most fundamentally sound basketball i've seen the books play and i don't know how long there was just so much brilliance and simple it wasn't it wasn't about you know making five trees in a row you know which is just that's that's a fluke that's not sustainable it was they were missing shots along the way they'd have good shots that didn't go they had uh a couple of times i think they were called for offensive fouls as i mean ursan was trying to draw charges on literally every play in the game on sunday but there was just a real focus tyler zeller was incredible i mean he was unbelievable not just with say his work on the boards where he rebounded solidly. Um, he defended in the third quarter in particular, Joel Embiid, I think, as well as anyone can. He he really stopped Embiid from, having, body. from having just any effectiveness on the game. I mean, like we could joke about that, but that's that's kind of what true. everyone wanted the books to get at the trade deadline. People were yes. upset that it was nothing more than Zeller, but Sunday night was that in evidence of that's what that kind of player is needed for, and Zeller can actually deliver that. I mean, Embiid might be the toughest matchup you could possibly have in that regard as well. So I, I think that that was a real positive. But beyond that, his his work offensively and his the understanding he seems to have built with Yanis without having played all that much together. It was a really nice play where he played a pass over the top to Yanis. He knows Yanis kind of had his man sealed off and he just kept going. And Yanis found him with a wraparound pass. And it was just kind of really simple two-man game between your four and your five that, I don't know, we don't see all that much of. Henson has a nice connection with Middleton, a really nice connection with Middleton. We've seen a lot of that this year. 
Henson and Yanis don't necessarily mesh in quite that same way. And there's already really positive signs about how Yanis and Zeller can connect together. And I guess beyond that, kind of, if anyone was unsure of Tyler Zeller, if anyone was still concerned with the trade, a lot of that will have been wiped away just by that incident, which could have ended in disaster right, that you alluded to when we started up, which was his dunk where Joel Embiid was a little bit late coming to challenge, caught him on the head, and, I mean, Zeller came down in as close to Andrew Bogut fashion as was possible. Sort of eerily similar, except obviously not the no. same. You you couldn't visually see the problems that Bogut had because it was a different injury, but the fall was very reminiscent of that. But the fact that he got up and he made his free throw, I think that will not just have endeared him to the fans. I mean, that's a real big moment for he's still new on the team, building something with his teammates. That's when you are in your moment like that where Jets off the bench, see if you're okay and he's getting the crowd worked up just because you've been failed really hard and made a good play. I mean, that's your moment. You're in now, and I think that happened for Zeller. Outside of Zeller, I mean, Jet was great. Not all that unusual recently. He Okay, he's had some off games, but on the whole, Jason Terry has been pretty great for the best part of a month now. Maybe not quite, but close to it, three weeks anyway. Yeah, basically resumed what he was doing last year at this time where even if his shot wasn't falling, he was still a positive presence on the floor. The other player who I don't know, I didn't watch the game live and I don't know. I didn't see in kind of what I was catching on Twitter during the game itself, a whole lot of talk about him. I thought Tony Snell was really, really good. One of the, yes, one of the best Tony Snell games I've seen for quite a while. And I say that because, the things that we associated with him on the defensive end as just, you know, a given night in and night out that haven't necessarily always been there. They were there against the Sixers. Yep. And th- he was key in changing the game. There's, it was those kind of guys. I mean, we'll get to Jabari, who was really brilliant. We'll get to Giannis in a moment. But Snell, Zeller, Jet, they helped set the tone to allow the Bucks, say, to lock in possession after possession. And, of course, you're going to look to your, your more talented or more skilled players to go down the other end and actually you know take care of it eric bledsoe as well had a really good game but it's those guys that set the tone not your paul pierce definition of glue guys jordan but glue guys all the same (laughs) as jordan takes a sip of his coffee sorry i was they caught me off guard yeah i totally agree with you on Tony Snell. i was going to point that out and then i cut it other things were happening <laughs> during that game. and But, yeah, he was making winning plays. Like, I think he was doing that even before he got hurt where – I can't remember which game it was. He missed the last two games, so it would have been the Pacers and Wizards. Pistons. Oh, Pistons. Pistons, yeah. But I think even the Wizards game, he was – I noticed when he – it was more in the second half when they were kind of going mano y mano, toe-to-toe, other, you know, tet-tet-tet. <laughs> Uh, with the Wizards in the second half, he was making winning defensive plays and helping out, showing more like, oh, this is interesting, kind of like plays that defensive, like, um, you know, plays that I wouldn't necessarily associate with him. Usually you would say, oh, he's locking down DeMar DeRozan like he did in the playoff series, or he's doing really good one-on-one. I don't know why I gave that specific example, but he's doing really good one-on-one defense. But he was doing like, 
getting really good deflection deflections, reading the play where he, I've always thought he's more of a reactive defender, not an active defender, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. where he, he can kind of shadow your move, but he can't necessarily read what's coming next. Well, there was, there was one play in particular, which I, I felt maybe I'm giving him too much credit and maybe it just happened for him, but I felt he read it, saw it coming and played it perfectly. I can't remember exactly which sixer it was. I feel like it was Sarich, but there was a sixer who was driving. Snell got to him from pretty far out from the basket. He tracked him the whole way, stayed really close and made things difficult. And he kind of corralled him into Chris Middleton, who mm. then managed to draw a charge. You know, it was Snell was giving no space for the guy to get past him to step back and take a shot. There was there was no room for him to do anything. And then it it sort of felt like he used his body to guide him into trouble, which was Middleton, and forced a turnover, which that's the sort of thing where it's not just, you know, isolation. Snell's really good in isolation as a defender. You know, if if you go one-on-one and he's purely focused on that, that's great. But it was even kind of extended awareness in terms of his defensive effort. To talk a little bit about Giannis and Jabari, I mean, this is going to... We'll cross over into the next topic I want to talk about because I, I feel like the two are somewhat related. Um, I, I already tweeted about this, but for me, uh, while I was watching the game, and again, watching him after the fact, watching the game on Monday prior to his recording, knowing how bad it was going to be early on, seeing how bad it was while I watched, there was a beautiful give-and-go play between Giannis and Jabari in the first quarter. That was just so fast, so smooth that I couldn't help kind of sit up and take notice of it and go, okay, that's, you know, that's not something every team has. And with that, it got me thinking a little bit. And, you know, the before the Sixers came to last week, last 10 days or so, has been difficult, you know, for Bucks fans. It's been it's been a tough watch. Um, particularly the the Pistons and Pacers games is one thing losing the close games against the Pelicans and Wizards. It's another losing in the fashion that they did to the Pistons and Pacers. With all of that, though, I, I feel there's maybe been just a bit too much negativity from Bucks fans. Around... Yeah, I know, Jordan, I know. But around the team overall, I feel I feel this is different to what we're used to. There, There was always... For a long time, there was the negativity in the sense of, oh, you know, this season's gone or whatever. And if we go back to the Jason Kidd era, there used to be a large proportion of the fan base who felt incredibly negative about everything that was happening. But the thing was always, you know, well, if Kidd is gone, they got a new coach, they got a better coach. You've got all this to, to work with. The books could become this kind of team. And OK, they still haven't got the new coach. But they're in a spot now where I feel there should be much better feeling about that long term, particularly now that we're seeing Jabari back on the court and we're seeing him look really, really good. And I I think it's fair to think the last week was brutal. I personally did. I found it one of the more difficult weeks of books games um, that I can remember for quite a while, because after that Raptors win, I think we all thought the season was about to go in a very different direction than it has gone since then. And it's okay to still feel down and be like, I don't like a lot of what I've seen. I don't believe Joe Prunty can do enough with this team to do what they need to do this season. I can I can understand both of those things. I just don't think we should lose sight of 
the book's long-term future still being as bright and maybe brighter than then it's looked for quite a while. They have a lot of challenges. Obviously, their cap sheet is right up there among them. Obviously, they'll have big decisions to make on a whole host of players. But there's these moments or these games, as Sunday's game turned out to be, where you see Jabari come in and just explode in the way he did. And just generally, Jabari's play since his return has been really incredible, considering the injury he's coming back from for a second time. And you see Jabari play like that in the game where Yanis also has the kind of performance he has. And it's in those situations where, you know, you you can count on your one hand and you won't even fill up the fingers in your one hand, the number of teams who have those kind of options. You know, for as, for as much as books fans can get down and frustrated and rightfully so very often about Chris Middleton or Eric Bledsoe or whatever it is, you know, if you've got Yanis and you've got Jabari and then you can have Middleton and Bledsoe and then when Brogdon's healthy, you have him. Like, these are good problems and they're not problems books fans have had to deal with for quite a while. You know, being down on this team or down on this team's future is insane to me when you think of what the Milwaukee books have looked like for the best part of two decades. And I, I think Sunday was a really timely and welcome reminder of, you know, there is a lot of good here. Are they perfect? No, very far from it. They still need a much better coach. They still need some sort of oh, some sort of work and some sort of intelligence in how they, they figure out their roster and how they create or manage their cap space as best they can or their lack of cap space. But there's a lot of good here. It's probably easier to have this conversation after that game. It undoubtedly is. But do you feel that's fair or has does a week like we saw before the Sixers game, does that four-game losing streak, do some of the trends we've seen for a long time, do they impact how you feel about the book's future? Or is it safe to say, well, their future is still, it still has the potential to be everything everyone wants it to be, just the road to getting there may not be kind of as simple and linear as everyone would have hoped. Um, I think all of it, all of it is correct. I think it, you can be hopeful um especially after nights like last night and i think you can dread what is to come because there are many pitfalls that are looming and it's not just one summer it's two summer and then you know i mean <laughs> it, it's never been about the well I, let me rephrase this i don't think anybody has a problem with the cornerstone players that they have they're obviously factors and why people have problems with they can't realize their long-term potential um that applies for any non-Giannis player <laughs> really um but a lot of what is needed as we talked about many times this season uh even on our last podcast we we talked about talent is not an issue for this team it's kind of figuring out the the quote-unquote, middle class of, you know, key players for this team because there is such a chasm of, you know, reliable role players to, you know, mostly bench guys that are, you know, DJ Wilson, Yusuf Yurashad Vaughn, um, like even Sterling Brown. I, I'm not, I'm not, I know this is just, I'm just saying what I've seen from him in the last week. He's been kind of, eh. Um, but aside from you know 
him and Lance Stevenson getting double technicals on Friday night's game. But I'm just saying that from that perspective, the top of the totem pole has never been a problem. It's about filling the spots in between and with, you know, the, the last three first round picks that they've haven't, you know, necessarily hit on um, to say the least at this point. And all the other factors, I mean, obviously the coaching search is going to loom again. That's another big domino that has to fall this summer. And, I mean, big decisions with this. That's the that's the whole thing about like when I understand like when people get you know the Zeller trade happens or the Shabazz Muhammad signing that happened over the week. I understand where this like outrage comes from, but it's like we got. I mean, there are going to be other bigger fish to fry. And, like, I, I those don't are, under you. You understand really for those two examples. I understand the outrage because I just understand Bucks fans are never going to be happy with whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's not understanding <laughs> as much as expecting it. Like really, I, I think that's the thing, and like you know, I we've discussed this on the podcast, I guess, but we've definitely discussed it privately a whole lot more. There's nothing more that I hate than this idea of you know, of every move, the expectation that every move has to be perfect, or if one move isn't perfect, that you're like, well, you know, the whole thing is gone. The books have made bad moves. Every team makes bad moves, like it. It, it, this is not a science where it's possible to get everything right. The books got DJ Wilson wrong. That's what it seems like right now. He's young enough. It's his rookie year. Maybe he can prove us all wrong. It would be a real surprise though, based on what we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. The books got Rashad Vaughn 100% wrong. We don't have to even consider that. But then what were we talking about? We're, we're, like at at this point, we're now kind of we're splitting hairs over whether they have Bobby Portis or not. And what is Bobby Portis? What does Bobby Portis solve for the books long term? Bobby Portis isn't the difference between the books winning a championship and not winning a championship. Does Bobby Portis look like Bobby Portis with the Bucks? I mean, and what I'm... is what is Bobby Portis anyway? Still, yeah. he's better than Rashad Vaughn. That's that's it. Like, and that is not a a high bar to clear. I mean. Tom Maker, we've seen a real promise. We've seen signs that, you know, that could have been a Sam Dunk pick. Right now, it doesn't feel like that. It still seems like one that time's going to have to play out on, but I'll always find it hard to kill that pick because Tom has even managed to show the flashes of, you know, the reason why the books drafted him. And, and did so much quicker than anyone would have expected too. I mean, yeah. when he was drafted, if we said, oh, Tom's still struggling in a second year, everyone probably is like, yeah, okay, he is. I mean, he may struggle for all four years. That may be, may be a waste. Like, that was the expectation. Go back and look at Tom draft grades from around, around the internet. Go and do that if you're feeling bad about Tom. And then realize what he gave in a playoff series last year. Some of the good that he's already shown and the fact that, you know, there's still time. Maybe that one is okay. But even if you want to write all those picks off as failure, if you're on the most extreme end of that, I mean, that is what it is. Ultimately, those players, they are difference makers, right? If you if you can get the perfect player at that spot, that's a difference in a couple of wins. That may tip you over the edge. The books don't have to worry about an edge yet because they have to actually get into a situation where things are relevant. <laughs> no, very seriously. I know, um, I know. I'm laughing because it's true. Yanis, Jabari. Middleton, Bledsoe, who we'll talk about some more in a minute, Brogdon, I mean, right now, there is a lot there, a lot that's really, really good. There are not many teams in the NBA who just have a wealth of talent. You can think Chris Middleton 
is not very good, which somehow a lot of people have decided upon. That's fine. If the Bucks can ever get fully healthy, if they can get a good coach to coach this team, Chris Middleton could be your third or fourth option. You can't tell me he's not a really good third or fourth option. If he's not that, don't worry, he'll be gone in free agency. It's There's, there's a level where it just kind of gets too kind of bogged down. You know, it's just, there's a level of, of stuff that's, it's too much to, to let it shade everything. Missing on mid first round draft picks, later first round draft picks, that isn't what's going to break you. What's fair to say is the books would be so much better if they found the perfect player at that spot. Obviously, if the books had John Collins on the bench to come in rather than DJ Wilson out, they'd be much better. Is that the thing that ultimately kills everything for them? No. It's not. No, but it. But I mean, the most damaging things the books have done is the the contracts in the free agency. But it's all a trickle. Twenty sixteen. That they're the most damaging things the books have done. It hasn't been missing the picks. Uh, I I mean, they're all. If you combine them all together, they're. I mean, it's a trickle effect. That's why yeah, it's not necessarily just one thing that you can point to. Of course, but in combining them all together, you you also have to go back as far as. Finding Giannis in the middle of the first round, yes. drafting Jabari. Everyone can now be like, oh, if they drafted Embiid, that is moronic. I'm sorry, that is moronic. Take those rose-tinted glasses off. You can't, you can't view it in that way. You can't say that now when you would have sat there for two years being like, Embiid may never play basketball. Imagine if the books had made that pick. Embiid may never play basketball. The books would finally have gotten a real top pick and they selected that guy. It's worked out now. Who knows what Embiid's future is like? His health is a major concern, just as Jabari's is right now. Jabari has a lot of talent. He's showing that again. You can't hate that. That's two things that are good. Getting Middleton as a throwaway in a Brandon Jennings trade, developing him to now, that's a good move. Getting Malcolm Brogdon where you got him, that's a good move. It's like the combined picture. You can't have a combined picture of books transactions to building this team without starting at they got Yanis in the middle of the first round they should yeah. never have been this way particularly when jason kidd's first season they come in and make the playoffs when they're nowhere near good enough like if you want to track it back to where did the books maybe kind of miss a step that's the year that's where when the sixers had like are you telling me the, 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 the bucks got good way too good too soon let's let's not go way too good too soon well, they got they got mediocre too soon and then they fell back a little bit but not enough you know the books basically the books just stayed the books for a little bit too long even when the odds were stacked against them from being like a potential eight seed the books found ways to get themselves in the eight seed mix and i feel that leaves an impression on the roster but when you look at where they are right now i mean they've got a top five player in the league Jabari is an incredible offensive talent and he's showing that much more so than I could have hoped coming back from his injury that that's still the case. And then you've got the other pieces around you. And you know what too? They just got Shabazz Muhammad. So I mean, we're oh, so... Jordan, thanks for, thanks for ruining the entire segment right at the end. Don't get down the books overall, is, is my point. Is it easy? No. Have they got a lot of challenges ahead? Yes. Having those challenges is, you know, not ideal, but having Giannis is much more important than that. You've got to start. You can you can work your way around it. You may even already have the kind of talent that gets you further if they get the right coach in. If they they figure out a lot of the things which I think are mental. It's just then it's just about learning how to win. 
that this team doesn't quite get and hasn't quite understood in part because they've had very little direction to do so. Anyway, Jordan, let's move it on. I want to talk about someone else. Uh, I might be taking on all of the unpopular books, Twitter takes on this particular podcast after that segment to then move on to say, I want to talk about just how brilliant Eric Bledsoe has been recently. We very kind of briefly alluded to this on the most recent episode of the podcast. But for as much as, you know, a lot of books fans on Twitter like to bemoan his shot selection and I don't know, dwell on that trade as if that was a bad idea at the time or, you know, the books took a gamble, a gamble worth taking. And right now they've got a player who's playing incredibly well at a time when the books need him to. And if they could figure out everything else, if they could get Yanis playing well again, if they could even just get Middleton playing better, which are Barry there with this version of Bledsoe, the books have a chance to be a very different proposition in the playoffs than they would have been without him if they'd kept Greg Monroe on those picks. Over his last 15 games, Eric Bledsoe is averaging 17.3 points on 49.2% from the field, 41.1% on 4.9 trees, over 90% from the free throw line. Add to that 5.6 assists, 4.4 rebounds, 1.6 steals, three turnovers per game. 1.6 steals is actually down from a season average. It's worth noting Eric Bledsoe is third in the NBA in steals per game at 2.0 steals. I believe only just behind Paul George for second, who's also on 2.0, marginally ahead of him. And Victor Oladipo currently leads on 2.2. Problems that Bledsoe's had, though, his assist turnover numbers were not good. His turnovers are pretty, you know, in line with where he's been at on the season overall over his last 15 games. He's brought those assists up, though, closer to two to one. That's good news. He's rebounded well all year. He's rebounding even better recently. And, I mean, let's just talk about those percentages for a minute. 49.2% for the field for a point guard is exceptional. It's rare. It's not his overall season average. That's 45.3%. That is also very good. So for as much as Bledsoe may take some shots people don't like, the results are the results are pretty good right now. Um, I mean, consider that I shouldn't go down this road again, but a lot of people want Brandon Jennings to come in as like a in-the-roster point guard. What's Brandon Jennings? A 41% career field goal shooter? 42, maybe? You might be... Giving... I'm being generous. Is he Is he not over 40? Because if he's I not over 40... I think it was just like over... Right over 40. Okay. Shooting 45% of the season from the field for a point guard is good. Um, shooting 41.1% over his last 15 games is more than a kind of hot spell for Bledsoe. In taking five shots a game over that time, he's showing an ability to do something that I'm not sure we were entirely convinced he could do. Um, I don't, I I didn't think he had a 15 game run of shooting over 40 percent of five attempts per game in him. Anyway, I'll speak for myself. Whether that's sustainable, it probably isn't. But if he's capable of it and he can kind of balance out somewhere in the middle, that's a real positive and something we didn't think we were getting. I just want to kind of briefly break down a shot selection before we get into talking about them a bit more generally. Um, over that same span, last 15 games where he's really, really excelled, he's shooting 69.4% in the restricted area, 
52.4% in the paint non-restricted area. 35.9% from mid-range. So, okay, the problem area, mid-range, not so good. Move on to the three-point shot. 50% from the left corner, 66.7% from the right corner. 41.8% above the break. To talk a little bit about the the volume of those attempts, right? Because the the most common complaint seems to be Bledsoe takes these awful mid-range shots and it's it kills the flow of your offense and it doesn't really do anything. Over his last 15 games, he's attempted 39 mid-range attempts. He's attempted 55 above the break trees alone. And he's a guy who's always going to take those mid-range shots. That's part of his game. And he's not actually the worst at it. He's probably a better shooter than those numbers over that span indicate from that kind of area on the floor. But to be taking quite as many above the break trees as he's taking, and it seems to be his spot, the more familiar we get with Bledsoe's game. I mean, it's maybe the toughest three-point shot there is. It's where I'm most confident in Bledsoe taking it. To be knocking them down with the frequency he is over that span is very encouraging. The mid-range is making up a small percentage of Bledsoe's you know, shot diet right now. You're looking somewhere in the region of... I'll say 20, 22% of his shots over his last 15 games have come in the mid-range. I mean, I think that's your best case scenario for Bledsoe, and it's it's hard to be overly disappointed with that. Do you think he should be getting a lot more credit? I think the numbers would just say yes, <clears throat> but do you think he should be getting a lot more credit than he is, and has it reached a point where however many months he is into his books tenure, it already seems like there's, you know, Books Twitter, for example, or parts of the fan base have decided that, you know, Bledsoe, that's a bad move. That's the wrong move. He's not the right player for this Sunk cost. Right. And they've just written them off in spite of the fact that right in front of their eyes, he's playing incredibly well at the moment. Yeah. As I said the other day, I, I proudly wear this scarlet letter that says pro Bledsoe on my chest. It's already it's starting to hurt. I probably had some contusion or something. But yeah, I mean, I we're not even you're talking about. I, I think I understand every little like mistake, you know, stands out like a sore thumb. Like last night, he had this horrible transition turnover where he was I can't remember where it was, but he was kind of feeling himself, and he did like a behind the back pass, and it was like, you know, what are you doing? Especially like they just got in the lead. I think this is maybe the third quarter. You're like, okay, like I understand where this is kind of going, but in that vein where even like turnovers or mid range um, jumpers, as you pointed out, those stick out like a sore thumb to every analytical mind of, you know, Bucks Twitter. And I understand that that's, I, I mean, I'm right there with you, but at the same time, I think we kind of forget every, it's so isolated that we kind of forget, sometimes maybe this he needs to do that to kind of step into his range from three-point line like at this point of the season um as of today both eric bledsoe and chris middleton are shooting 34 percent exactly um and i don't know if you're helping I, the case for another argument that we often have to have but well i'm just i'm painting out this picture that for all the talk of he was a bad fit all this stuff and those are true where they're not perfect overlaps, um, him and Giannis, or even him and Jabari. Um, you know, that's not really a discussion, you know, I've seen. But I mean, none of the I none of the Bucks 
pieces are really simple overlaps. Maybe Chris and Giannis, but I think a lot of that is just more the ideal idealized version as we talked about the last time. But I mean, at this point of the season, I, I fully, ex- I'm very confident that when the ball makes, or if, uh, you know, he gets dished a pass from beyond the, beyond the three point line, it's going in. He's shooting 39% from on catch and shoot threes this year. He's been very good shooting the ball. I, I, I think mean, I, I've given the last 15 games there and people might just think that's a, that's a random number. It's an obvious spike. I mean, you extend to his last 20 games and I don't feel that's random because he, people remember from when he was traded, he had niggling injuries and he carried them for quite a while. And there's a real feeling that he he's healthy. He has spoken a little bit about himself, but it, you can see it when you watch him play now. Like over the last 20 games, at 37.5% too. And I think interesting in this, like some of this may come down to, you know, a better coach could possibly even utilize Bledsoe more and in a way that is more appealing to everyone, in a way that is maybe taking some of the things that everyone would have assumed to be his his weaknesses and turning them into positives. Like when I give those three point shooting numbers, which are pretty good, they are almost entirely built around the above the break, the break trees, which are very difficult. He's shooting fifty percent for the left corner. He's taken four attempts in his last fifteen games. He's shooting sixty six point seven percent from the right corner. He's taken six attempts. He's shooting the ball well at the moment. Maybe they need to say when the ball's in, you know, Yana's hands, Chris's hands, Jabari's hands. But it's in the corner might be something that they need to look at. And I mean, that's something where if everyone wants to complain about his mid-range shots, well, that's that's your idealized version. Well, you'd rather see him make 33% of his shots from the corner than 33% from just inside the arc. You know, if that's the argument, well, then that's what the books need to do. But right now he's making a lot more of those shots. And I think it's only fair that he gets some shine for that. Like we did touch out the other day. What what is like where does this go? If it doesn't work with Bledsoe, they move Bledsoe. We're just back in a spot where, you know, they try uh maybe an upgraded version of a Delvadova to start, and then they say that doesn't work, they need a faster change of pace. Like it's a cycle that can go on forever. It, it yeah. really can. What Bledsoe's doing right now is really good. And we, we haven't even talked about his defensive play, which is incredibly important. And he's one of the more consistent defenders. Doesn't mean he doesn't have his lapses in concentration. Literally everyone on this book team has them, which is part of the problem. They often choose to have them all together in the same quarter, um, which has led to a lot of the issues we've seen recently. But there is a lot to like about him. And I mean, maybe it's a case that playoffs will come around and people will be bemoaning, oh, the ball's in Bledsoe's hands too much and we were watching these possessions where he didn't score. There's also a timeline where Bledsoe's a difference maker in a playoff series and the books advance because they didn't have a player like that last year. And we've already seen in some games with the Raptors, it's just a different look that the books couldn't give Toronto last year. And when the books are completely locked in and focused, I think it'll be interesting to see how that one translates. Very quickly, Jordan, what I want us to do is... Take a little bit of a look around the Eastern Conference. We've been doing this a bit more recently, and I think we're going to be doing it on an almost weekly basis because, as we alluded to at the start of the podcast, the race for the playoffs in the East is tight. At the moment, as we record this, before Monday night's games, where, I mean, big games in this very race as the Bucks will play the Pacers, the Bucks are in seventh place in the standings. Only two and a half games behind the Cavaliers in third. 
And yep. mo- most importantly of all, five games ahead of the Pistons in ninth. Because the Bucks have gone through a really bad spell. The only win the Pistons have been getting from anywhere was the win they got against the Bucks. The yeah. Pistons, I take back everything I said, Jordan, they are awful. And it's very Thank fortunate you. because the Bucks are lucky that the ninth place team is as bad as they are right now. Because it's taking the worries away about making the playoffs, you know? They aren't the Bucks' worries to begin with, though. That wasn't the goal. That wasn't the goal a week ago. It wasn't the goal to start the season. So, I mean, with that, half a game behind the Sixers, a game and a half behind the Wizards, two games behind the Pacers with a chance to cut into that before even maybe a lot of people listen to this. What's your feel on the East right now? Who do you feel like in that race is kind of on the rise, on the fall? I, I think it's not necessarily been the greatest week for the Cavs and the Wizards. Pacers obviously going well, although the Bucks have a chance to, to kind of have their say in that. What's your feeling on the East as we stand? Um, surprisingly, I think uh, beyond anybody's expectations, the Pacers have quietly just kind of hummed along. They're currently the four seed, um, barring some sort of injury. And even they've, you know, Darren Collison, who not a star player by any means, but a very valuable role player. Important player for a team that with their roster. You know, with their options. Yes. Yes. Um, barring injury, I, I don't think that's going to change. Maybe they slide to the fifth seed, but I think they're going to largely stay the same. Cavaliers, I mean, again, for as good as they looked at the trade, we have to have to remember that it's basically like a, tra- I think it's basically like a training camp midseason with how many, you know, how much turnover they've gone through over the last month or whatever. The Wizards, they don't have John Wall, and who knows how that will. <laughs> Who knows how that would, uh, you know, they respond to him when he comes back. You know. They've lost three in a row now. Yeah. Yeah, after the Bucks game. After the Bucks they, game. I mean, they've played good teams. They lost to the Pacers. They also lost to the Raptors. But, okay, you're playing the teams you're supposed to be as good as and in the mix when they were losing them. And they, I mean, let's be honest, they were lucky to beat the Bucks. Most other nights, the Bucks would have got across the line and beat them in that game. So, maybe not as convincing as they would have looked even just a few days ago. And with Philly, like I understand, I mean, they're obviously, they're a very good team, especially they have gradually, uh, you know, risen from the process into the results uh, to part, you know, call back to a joke. Not quite Jordan, not quite though, but still, we haven't haven't mentioned, sorry, we we need to mention the, the, the elephant in the Bradley center. No, I don't. Sure, I, mean, I, I need to commend those those Sixers fans for making that long trip. They must have had to travel home with heavy hearts. It takes a certain kind of mental fortitude, though, to be able to, you know, hold on to something as long as they have, and that that probably served them well for then dealing with you know blowing a twenty point lead to a Malcolm Brogdon less books team. That can only have helped them. That that was probably the equivalent of not coming away with the Rookie of the Year in spite of having two lottery picks out of the three nominees for Rookie of the Year. So, I mean, the Sixers have been well well prepared for this, their fans, and I say, well done, Sixers fans. Good for you. You came, you enjoyed your loss, and you went back home. Anyway, they're coming off this big winning streak, and I don't know. I, I think a little bit, I think... 
I don't know. Did I say this on the last podcast? But I know Matt Moore at, at Hardwood Paroxysm has said uh, Paroxysm. Parox- paroxysm. You're right for some. Okay, thank you. Otherwise, it will derail my points. But he's saying don't judge teams when they're at their best, like, you know, Utah going on this crazy run, Sixers, you know, over the last couple of weeks. And then don't judge That's teams the when they're at their worst. Right. Which, you know, the Bucks with, you know, four-game losing streak with horrible losses <laughs> at every corner. And I think that is kind of how I feel about Philly specifically because they're obviously they're, very they're good. They're the most game swing team. Yes, yes, very much so. I think they even have a lot of games to uh, pick up because of they went to the London. So how is how are they going to? No, nah, not make... really. I mean, they've only played one game less than the books. They're 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 pretty much caught up on that. They've already gone through a pretty heavy patch in their schedule to do that. But I, I mean, like what the what the Sixers have and have done is they've blown more twenty point leads, I believe, than any team in the NBA. Um, I, I don't even have the number on how many double-digit leads they have blown. I mean, the time I saw them in person, that London game you mentioned, they were up by 20 points and they ended up losing by like 25. Like, yeah. that, that is the Sixers. So Sounds familiar. It, it is. And I mean, and that's your point. I mean, like, you don't judge either the books or the Sixers necessarily on, say, who they were in the first, the third quarters last night, the the second and fourth quarters were more representative of who those two teams are. That's that's your point you're making. And I, I honestly, I think in that kind of shakeup, the books are a better team than a lot of books fans may give them credit for, because I, I think obviously you feel the lows very real, very close to home when you're watching a team all the time, even in so many of these awful books games recently. They've won three out of four quarters. You know, it's they've they've played a pretty solid game and then they've just had this one moment and it's kind of you gotta hope playoffs come that disappears. But yeah, look at an interesting, interesting time ahead. We'll look ahead to the book's upcoming schedule in just a moment. But first, Jordan, it's time to talk about a certain Mr. Jay Bauer. We're both professionals. You know that I can force this information out of you, but I'm running out of time. Jordan. I can't remember what we were at last week. I can't either. <laughs> let me let me see if I have it noted in my notebook. That would be helpful. We were at 49 last week. What's the new number for 24 second violations for Spider Books? Drum roll, please. Fifty-four. Wow. Yeah, we are we had a as bad as the Bucks were, it was a very good Jack Bauer week. I think that has been the highest Jack Bauer week by my unofficial count that doesn't track week-by-week week stats. I mean, we're going to bring the app next year. Are we? Okay. Um, I will. When the defense is revamped, maybe it's not even a feature then. But yeah, that's not bad. Let's, let's move it on to predictions. Let's, first of all, start off with the game that, I mean... Coming up very shortly, a lot of you may be listening to this after the fact. Monday night, the Bucks visit Indianapolis. Bankers Life Fieldhouse play the Pacers for the second time in, what, four days? And look to tie the season series. If they lose this one, Pacers would have the tiebreaker. So it could be an important game. What's your prediction, Jordan? A back-to-back record. I think they're 9-4, and 8-4, four, and four, one of those. The Bucks? Yeah. 
Uh, and worth noting, the Pacers are obviously on the ba- second over back-to-back as well, having beaten the Wizards last night. I think the Bucks win. I think it's going to come down to the wire. I think they win by three. I think the Bucks win too, but I feel like they needed what they got in that third quarter. They needed to finish a game like that, like they did last night. I think they'll get that momentum and they'll run with it. I'm going to go Bucks by 11, and I that might even allow some time for rest. I think we could get a, a really good Bucks win, so apologies in advance for what my prediction has just done to the actual Bucks performance. After that, even if the Bucks do get a nice win, there is no rest by just yet as probably the NBA's best team at the moment. Do, do I need the probably there? At the moment, is enough of a qualifier. I think it, the NBA's best team by record, anyway, the Houston Rockets, will make their sole visit of the season to the Bradley Center. I'm not expecting you to feel good about this one, Jordan, but how do you feel about it? Weirdly, the Bucks have played the Rockets mm-hmm. well at the Bradley Center. Um, they, they even played them well once at Toyota Center in the last couple of years. Once, I know one didn't Yeah, that was a big well. Giannis game. That was, like, I think his first... I feel like that was also a big Jabari game. Um, Jabari was hurt for that one. Jabari had a, a really good, a big game the year after. Okay. I, I'm, I, I'm probably mixing up my Giannis games, but the one that I'm thinking of was when he was starting to... Uh, get into his you know feed the beast feed it um anyway but this is a different rocket team and they're very good and they scare me i'm gonna go rockets by 14. i i do think it will be closer than that and i mean maybe this is in part playing into some of the old things that we talked about with the books which was like big game opponent they're gonna play up to it um i don't know in front of me now i feel like this is a nationally televised game too could be wrong on that, but I feel like it might be, which I know that has had its ups and downs. Hey, the Sixers game was on ESPN. Um, I'm going to go Rockets by seven, and I think the books will be in it. I think it will be competitive. Lastly, for this week, and this is starting off a very favorable spell. This is starting off a spell of four games that the books really should win. They should effectively win six of seven games, I would say, after that Rockets one. The Knicks will visit the Bradley Center. The obviously Porzingis-less Knicks after the last meeting between the two teams. Michael Beasley will be back as well. Say that before you have to, Jordan. What is your prediction? Um, Bucks by 11. Um, I'm going to go Bucks by 14. Maybe I'm just feeling too good after that second half of the Sixers game, that end of the third quarter in particular. But there's a chance that they may have just found something at the right time because the schedule is going to be kind coming up. And if they could just, if say if they can beat the Pacers, lose to the Rockets in whatever fashion as you expect, and then take care of business, would have tight the Eastern Conference races at the moment. Rolling off four wins in a row, say, against non-playoff teams, that would be very, very timely and could see the books shoot right up the standing. So... You know, okay, things weren't so great over the last week. We've seen a setback, but don't panic. It's not over yet, Jordan. They have plenty of time to fully recover and get back hey to now. Hey now. the kind of the kind of mix that we expected them to be in a month ago. We hope they'd be in at the start of the year. So 
yeah, don't get too down, everyone. Some positive signs still there. The schedule's not that unkind compared to what it's been recently. All right, so that does it for us for now. As usual, we'll be back with you later in the week. We'll be back ahead of that Knicks game. You'll be able to listen to us on Friday. We'll take your mailbag questions. Uh, for, for those listening, mailbag always on Thursday morning afternoon. Tweet the questions out. We record kind of afternoon time, late afternoon time. If you're not in before that, you've missed it. We're not just not selecting your questions. Uh, there's there's a few people this seems to keep happening to. But watch out for the tweet Thursday morning afternoon for the mailbag. That's when we send it out if you want your questions answered. In the meantime, before we get to answering all of those on Friday, make sure you subscribe to Snap the Podcast. Falls and SoundCloud, Addison Stitcher, and Favorites and TuneIn Radio. You can read mine and Jordan and the rest of the team's work at BehindThePass.com. And we'll be back to you very soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you.